For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, how the White House announcement on the future of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program could impact the lives of as many as 28,000 Arizonans. Meet members of the Rainbow 17, a caravan of gay and transgender people seeking asylum in the United States. Find out how the wildlife around Houston, Texas has fared in the wake of Hurricane Harvey. And Arizona veteran Keith Connolly talks about his experience in the Vietnam War. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Last weekend, President Donald Trump said on Twitter that he would end an Obama-era executive order that protected certain people who arrived in the U.S. as children from deportation. Christopher Conover reports that even though the immigrant community knew the announcement was forthcoming, there was shock and anger when it became a reality. The program known as DACA that was effectuated under the Obama administration is being rescinded. For people in the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program known as DACA, that announcement on Tuesday from Attorney General Jeff Sessions was exactly what they did not want to hear. And within hours, they were publicly letting that be known. On the University of Arizona campus, about 100 students gathered on the mall in front of the administration building. UA student Perla Rojas is covered by DACA. She arrived in the U.S. from Mexico 16 years ago. Having this has given me the opportunity to continue to thrive and to kind of show the world that although this this does hurt us and it does um, impact our future immensely, we're not going to give up. Standing nearby was Mira Patel. She, too, is covered by DACA, coming to this country from the United Kingdom more than a decade ago. She says President Donald Trump's decision to end the program doesn't mean the fight for the immigrant community is over. We're going to keep on pushing, fight even harder tomorrow, push our institutions and our policymakers to make change that help us. We're not going to go down just because of the news that happened. The institution tasked with making that change is Congress. They now have six months to pass legislation to replace DACA before it's phased out. It's a burden that weighs heavily on Arizona Senator Jeff Flake. I think the principle is that we shouldn't punish kids for actions taken by their parents. That's really a bedrock principle in our judicial uh, system here. Replacing DACA has bipartisan support in Congress. Of course, getting a bill everyone can agree on is the difficult part of that task. Southern Arizona Congressman Raul Grijalva helped introduce legislation on the floor just one day after the administration announced the phase-out of the program. Thank you. I ask unanimous consent to bring up H.R. 3440, the DREAM Act, to protect dreamers like Juan, who graduated from Arizona State University and is currently working as a mechanical engineer. In a phone call with Arizona Public Media, Grijalva says he'll fight to keep the continuation of the program from being tied to other items like a border wall. He also has a message for the 28,000 people in Arizona covered by DACA. You have taken the risk. You have put yourself out there. You have been honest and open about who you are 
and your and and the role you can play in this great nation of ours. It is the time for every member of Congress to also be as accountable as they've been. Supporters of the Deferred Action Program marched on Tucson City Hall twice this week. They want local governments to do something to protect those who are now vulnerable to deportation. Pima County Supervisor Richard Elias was at one of the rallies and pledged his support. Well, I think we need to step up and, and, and speak about our support for uh, these youth, for these people who uh, are feeling so betrayed by this country, by its policies. I think we've got to take a look at our public safety departments and, and make sure they're acting in line with that because there's a lot of frustration out there. In reality, there's little local government can do because the issue is a federal matter. DACA recipients are worried about their futures in the country. Lynn Marcus with the Immigration Law Clinic at the University of Arizona says that's understandable, but the good news is, at least for now, they don't need to look over their shoulders. There was a fear when pe in terms of people applying for DACA that they were turning over their all their personal information to the government that could then use that information to, to target them from removal. And that is not what the Department of Homeland Security is going to do. The fear and the frustration, though, is real. In Phoenix, there were tears after the announcement and hugs of DACA recipients from friends like Elizabeth Luna. I feel like we didn't fight hard enough, but we did, and it's not fair. It's not fair. Congress has six months to act before the program is fully discontinued. In a tweet late this week, President Trump said DACA recipients have, quote, nothing to worry about. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Christopher Conover. Christopher Conover prepared our report with audio assistance from Zach Ziegler and Mariana Dale. Who are the Rainbow Seventeen? In August, a caravan of transgender women and gay men from Central America and Mexico, along with family members and supporters, arrived at the U.S.-Mexico border to plead for asylum in the United States. Maria Inez Terracena spent some time with them in Nogales, Sonora, before the group turned themselves in to immigration officials. Here is her report. It's a Sunday morning in Nogales, Sonora. I'm at the home of Hope and Peace, or EPAC, a shelter for migrants and people who have been displaced. In front of me sits Gerson, a young gay man from Honduras. Gerson, along with a caravan of three gay men and 12 transgender women from Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, and Mexico, arrived in Nogales a few days prior. It's about 11 a.m. Some of them are still asleep in the dorms, and a handful of them are making breakfast in the kitchen. Gerson tells me it's already difficult to be a migrant, crossing through Central American borders into Mexico and the U.S. But being gay or transgender adds another layer of risks. Gerson crossed to Guatemala, but he says the discrimination was equally as bad as it was in Honduras. In Mexico, things weren't much different either. 
When he was there, Gerson says he was constantly abused by law enforcement and assaulted by other people. Gerson says that when you leave your country, it's with the expectation that you will feel safe, that you will be protected somewhere else. When he crossed into Mexico, he says it wasn't just the abuse by law enforcement. It was also the exploitation he went through as a migrant worker. There were times he knew he wasn't going to get paid much more than a plate of food. Gerson talks about the gang violence in Honduras. He says they beat you, they insult you, they sexually assault you. The abuse often begins in childhood. It's basically impossible to find employment if you're an openly gay man in Honduras. Gerson was fired from his job after two years because he came out to a company doctor. Even though being gay, lesbian, bisexual or transgender is not illegal in Central America or Mexico, these regions are among the deadliest for LGBT people. For instance, earlier this year in El Salvador, three transgender activists were killed within the same month. Similar patterns can be found in the rest of Central America and Mexico. Cataleya is a transgender woman from Guatemala. She's sitting next to Gerson. She's making melon and banana smoothies, serving a glass to everyone in the room. Cataleya says she did not want to leave her mom or her siblings. She loves them and wants to be in her country, but she was forced to flee. If she didn't leave, she would have been killed. Cataleya says she was nearly beaten to death. She was sexually assaulted, thrown in a ditch. She says she found the strength to get up and walked home to see her mom. The family decided to move to a northern region of Guatemala. There, Cataleya was exposed to the same violence again. And once she crossed into Mexico, it was the same story. As I sit there eating breakfast with the caravan, I hear from Electrica, a transgender woman from Honduras who is also fleeing sexual assault and abuse. I hear from Naomi, also a transgender woman from Honduras. She was there with her partner, Jose. For many of them, it was the first time they felt supported. They did not want to be separated. Supporters have nicknamed the caravan the Rainbow 17. Many of them met in migrant shelters in southern Mexico. Others met on the streets during their journey. Throughout, they connected with Nakai Float, a doctorate student in Harvard and the co-founder of Diversidad Sin Fronteras, Diversity Without Borders. The group describes itself as an LGBT collective of activists, researchers, and documentary makers, exposing human rights abuses against refugees and migrant people in North and Central America. Nakai Float and Irving Mondragon, 
co-founders of Diversidad Sin Fronteras, helped organize the caravan. Once most of them were together, the caravan traveled for more than a week through Mexico until they reached Nogales, Sonora on July 25th. Others arrived at different times. Gerson says he has been fleeing for almost two years. He could have been in school, he could have been working to help his country become a better place. His father was killed, his brother was killed. Gerson says he suffered torture and abuse. Even though he loves his country very much, he has nothing to go back to. On the morning of August 10th, more than 50 people marched in solidarity with the Rainbow 17. It was sunny and humid in Nogales, Sonora. The group walked on Calle Internacional, a street that runs next to the border wall. The caravan could see the homes in Nogales, Arizona, through the cracks of the fence. They were only a few meters away from the United States, yet still so far from calling this country their refuge. By early afternoon on that day, as they held their thick asylum applications, the caravan walked to the Deconcini port of entry near downtown Nogales and turned themselves in to immigration officials. Their tears were uncontrollable. They hugged and said goodbye to those who took care of them. As the group entered through the metal revolving doors of the port of entry, supporters screamed words of encouragement. One member of the caravan was released from detention earlier this week. The rest are split between two detention centers in New Mexico. The caravan's pro bono legal team, which includes the Oakland-based Transgender Law Center, is currently working with Immigration and Customs Enforcement to release the rest of the caravan on humanitarian parole. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Maria Inés Taracena. Amidst the destruction and loss of life in Houston caused by Hurricane Harvey, one small story went viral online and caught the interest of animal lovers around the world. A cooper's hawk with an injured wing took refuge in a parked car, which led to the hawk receiving specialized care from the Texas Wildlife Rehabilitation Coalition. 
Since 2011, author and wildlife illustrator Beth Surdit has been exchanging observations and wildlife knowledge with Amanda Rimsberg, a federally permitted songbird rehabilitator with the coalition. Next, Beth Surdit interviews Amanda Rimsberg about the hurricane's aftermath to find out how flooding has changed the Houston ecosystem. How are the mockingbirds and everybody else that you've got in your joint over there? <laughs> yeah, I have two robins. I have a group of cardinals and several young mockingbirds. They're all growing up. There's Some of them still want to be hand-fed, but most of them are growing up at this time. So we've got our late summer babies. And I still have one purple martin that will be staying with the Houston Audubon as their education animal. She came in prior to the hurricane and had a really bad head injury, and it seems that she won't be fully recovering from that, but she is a good ambassador for her species, so we'll be transferring her over to the Houston Audubon. Houston has a famous hawk flying around the Internet. (laughs) Harvey the Hawk, yeah. He was uh, picked up by a taxi driver, Uber driver type person and uh, ended up on YouTube all over the place, and one of our uh, raptor rehabbers, decided to go rescue him. So how's Harvey doing? Harvey's doing very well. The wing is healing still. Actually, Harvey is a female. Oh. found out that (laughs) based on weight, they have determined that uh, Harvey is more than likely a female. You were one of the small percentage of people that didn't have to run from the hurricane. No, I was very fortunate. Um, Our neighborhood, we got some water in the street, but it never entered our houses and we're in pretty good shape now. There are still some neighborhoods that are actually between myself and the TWRC center that's preventing me from freely going over there. What used to be a 20 to 30 minute commute is now like five hours round trip. You sent me a picture of a screech owl this morning. Uh, How long did it take to go get that screech owl? My husband Robert went yesterday and it took him five hours round trip to get this poor little screech owl back to into rehab. And what's the damage? Oh, he just collided with the window. He's got a little bit of a headache, but he should recover fully. I don't see any other injuries on him. Well, his story's a lot happier than what I've been seeing on the news, especially with the bats. Can you talk about that? We do have a lot of bat colonies that collect under our overpasses and our freeway system. A lot of it flooded all the way up to the top. We're talking 20, 30 feet of water collecting in these underpasses. And so on our Wall Street bridge, unfortunately, the colony there was heavily impacted by the the rising waters, and they were not able to escape. They do estimate that they only lost about 30% of that population, but it's still a huge impact. We have the same kind of bats here under our bridges, Mexican free-tailed bats. That's correct. And they come to my house every night and suck the hummingbird feeders dry. And I was (laughs) watching them last night and thinking about the bats that I had seen who had drowned because bats can't swim. That's true. And and with the rising waters and the the high winds, they, they were taking shelter under the underpass like they would normally do. But with the rising waters, it was too fast for them to get out. Unfortunately, a lot of the losses, I think, were were young. Uh, The pups that were not experienced enough to climb further up into the bridge, a lot of the adults were able to actually climb up further into the, the crevices there. Very important for those populations to be maintained here because otherwise mosquitoes would be unbearable. Without our bats, we would be totally lost. How many animals approximately were evacuated? 
think at least 30, 35 opossums. And then there were a number of squirrels also, so probably about 20 squirrels at the time. The very first day that we reopened, which was a couple of days after the hurricane had completely passed, they took in 30 squirrels in one day, and that's just only in the four hours that we were open. Fortunately, we do have connections with other rehab uh, organizations, and we had an organization come and pick up animals uh, from us to take back to the Dallas area for rehab. When I talked to you during the time when you didn't know if you were going to have to leave the house, you said to me, but I can't leave. Right. I had 27 birds inside at the time, and I had like six birds outside in my outdoor caging and fortunately, everyone survived. This wasn't so much of a wind event. I didn't feel like I needed to bring the birds inside that I had outdoors. They were fine. And I can't imagine what would be going through the, these little wild bird mines if I had to carry them out of here, put them in a boat, and go who knows where. <laughs> I felt like evacuation wasn't really a good option for us at all. Do you have any sense of how this particular hurricane affected the bird population? I think the birds mostly just moved west. My resident blue jays that I released in May have returned to me. They were missing for a few days during the storm. The hummingbirds seemed to move west for sure, but there were a lot of people that reported that the hummingbirds were still showing up at their feeders, even in between rain showers. So they were still here. It's amazing how strong they are, and they do have a survival instinct. Could you take us for a walk through the aviary? So I've got like a uh, batch of three cardinals here with their cohort finch, a single house finch that I house together with the cardinals because their diets are similar and uh, they get along well. And I've got a pair of robins, young robins. They will probably be next in line to be released. They've grown up well. They're self-feeding. He just spoke to me. (laughs) And then I've got two batches of mockingbirds, a batch of four and a batch of five. Once you've heard that sound, You'll hear it everywhere as you're walking through your neighborhood during baby season. You'll hear this sound. They're very noisy, very demanding babies. And then I have Amelia, who is uh, the purple martin that's an education bird for Houston Audubon. And I do have one heron out in uh, our release cage that um, we're just waiting for the waters to go down far enough so that he can go out and be a, be a heron in the wild. So who's that? That's the Purple Martin talking right there. That's Amelia Earhart. That's Amelia. <laughs> she does talk to me. If I come over and and you know talk to her, then she'll she'll talk to me back. She's a very special bird. Um, brain damage is there, but <laughs> we think that she has vision impairment is what the problem is because um, she won't fly. Oh. She chooses to stay on a perch. Thanks so much, Amanda. Beth Serdit spoke with Amanda Rimsberg, a songbird rehabilitator with the Texas Wildlife Rehabilitation Coalition in Houston. Beth will be back next week with a new installment of The Art of Paying Attention to introduce us to one local owl that has sent her hunting for answers.
Beginning September 17th on PBS6, watch for the new Arizona Public Media documentary miniseries, Arizona and the Vietnam War, and the new epic 10-part, 18-hour film series, The Vietnam War, from directors Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. In anticipation, Arizona Spotlight is sharing profiles of some Arizonans who served during the Vietnam War. As a boy growing up in Arizona, Keith Connolly dreamed of flying. Fortunately, Phoenix turned out to be the perfect place to launch his dream of becoming a seasoned fighter pilot. Keith served two tours in Vietnam. I first started out at North High in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, then after a while, I kind of became interested in aviation. And uh, there was uh, Phoenix Technical High School in those days. And uh, so I ended up graduating from Phoenix Technical School because it offered an aeronautical course down there where you could literally work on airplanes. Uh, I got interested in aviation quite early in my life. I went to Phoenix College, two-year college in those days, and uh, uh, worked as a service station attendant. After I started flying then at Phoenix College, uh, I applied uh, for the Air Force. I, I wanted to be a pilot. It's uh, around the 1964 time frame, and I was in then the F-100 uh, Super Sabre, and I was a combat-ready pilot. A lot of people wanted to get to Vietnam because everybody figured it'll be over tomorrow. This is going to be over tomorrow. The Yanks are coming. Uh, we're fighting uh, a bunch of third world country people. Once we show them what we can do, um, it's going to change uh, the outcome. So were we wrong? We terribly underestimated uh, the capability of the enemy. We certainly underestimated their endurance and their ability to fight for their cause. In 1969, things had changed, okay? One, uh, it was no longer a quote adventure. It was the beginning of the, what I call the disillusionment of Vietnam, meaning uh, my wife, as an example, uh, was then uh, staying in a home that we rented in Phoenix, Arizona, because our family was there. And when our neighbors found out that I was in Vietnam as a pilot, they wouldn't talk to her. They shunned her. So that was the start of that sort of activity, if you will, if you happen to be a military man. I think 1969, 1970 was really the beginning of the end of uh, our love affair, if you will, for fighting in Vietnam. That Profile and Arizona and the Vietnam War were produced by Tom Clesby with assistance from Robert Lindbergh. The documentary miniseries debuts at 7 p.m. on Sunday, September 17th, followed by the premiere of Ken Burns' The Vietnam War at 8 p.m. on PBS 6. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and stories through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.